Father, we pray with Asaph in Psalm 80, asking that you would restore us, let your face shine, that we may be saved. And Father, we pray that you would stir up in us a longing for the Lord Jesus and his coming. Help us to live for that. In Christ's name and by the Spirit, amen. In his book, Making Sense of God, which I would recommend to you, uh, Tim Keller has this, this illustration. He writes, imagine you have two women of the same age, the same socioeconomic status, the same educational level, and even the same temperament. You hire both of them and say to each, you are part of an assembly line, and I want you to put part A into slot B and then hand what you have assembled to someone else. I want you to do that over and over for eight hours a day. You put them in identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, and ventilation. You give them the very same number of breaks in a day. It is very boring work. Their conditions are the same in every way except for one difference. You tell the first woman that at the end of the year, you will pay her $30,000. And you tell the second woman that at the end of the year, you will pay her $30 million. After a couple of weeks, the first woman will be saying, isn't this tedious? Isn't it driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second woman will say, no, this is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. Uh, the, 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 the illustration is making the point that human beings live on hope. We live on hope. And Keller, in this, in this chapter on hope, he discusses uh, a study of American culture and American history that, that suggests that in the early days of the founding of this country, uh, when, when you had the Puritans, uh, many people set their hope on God. And, and they, they were hoping that God's kingdom would come. And they were hoping that they themselves would be sanctified. They were hoping for everything that you see in the Bible. And then as, as things began to change, as enlightenment thinking began to spread, the hope, it's like it retracted. And it, and it narrowed down and it became fixated on this nation. And suddenly the hope was no longer for the kingdom of God. The hope was that the United States would be the greatest nation on earth and would lead the world in making progress. Progress being a Christian idea, but once it's stripped of its Christian uh, definitions and its Christian realities, then it becomes vague, and, and we're not sure exactly who's defining this progress and exactly what it looks like, with the result that as the years continue to pass, the hope retracts again. And, and where we are now, this study suggests, is that all our hopes lie in our own individual, personal experience. And the result of this is that we're not capable of, of even imagining why people would delay gratification, why people would live for something that's to come in the future. Because everything is about, the whole world is about, my personal satisfaction right here, right now. And so this individualism has a hope that's fixated on itself. 
What we're going to see this morning in Psalm 80, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 80. What we're going to see here is the hope of God's people. And as we go through this passage, what I want to do is contrast individual optimism with the hope of God's people. As we approach uh, Psalm 80, uh, we're going to see this refrain that is going to structure the psalm for us. So uh, as we were reading this passage in, in family devotions this week, which is a practice I would commend to you if you've got kids or even if it's just you and your wife or if it's just you, um, every, every, every night leading up to Sunday as you go to bed, uh, you can get out the Bible and you can think to yourself, let's see, Jim preached Psalm 80 last Sunday, he's probably going to do 81 next Sunday, maybe I'll read that passage every day as I prepare for worship this Sunday, that's what we do in our home, and one night I said to the boys, I want you to count how many times this particular statement occurs, and it's the statement that you see in verse 3, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved, and they listen attentively and they say it Happened three times. So you'll see it again in verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. A little bit fuller. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then again in verse 19 at the very end of the psalm. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. There's a similar statement in verse 14, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. These, these four statements, including the one in verse 14, they divide the psalm into four sections. And as we move through the psalm, we'll see how each one of these sections has a, a discrete point that it's making. Um, let me also observe the way that, look for instance at, at the end of Psalm 79, verse 13. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture. That kind of imagery is continued in verse 1 of Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. So there's this flock and sheep and shepherding imagery that you also have in Psalm 78. You remember uh, at the end of that psalm, if, you're, if, you, if your Bible is open, it's on the same page. Psalm 78, 70, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds to shepherd Jacob his people. And then similarly, at the end of Psalm 77 in verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So there's, a, there's a, a vein of thought that moves through these psalms that deals with the Lord shepherding his people. And, and with that also, uh, so you can see how Psalm 79 is connected to Psalm 80. And I would suggest that the scene in Psalm 79, we looked at that uh, last week, and we saw how in verses 1 through 3, Jerusalem had been ravaged. An enemy army had come in and plundered the temple and and killed some of the people and defiled the land. And that scene is the, is the setting for Psalm 80. So as we, as we enter into Psalm 80, we should bear in mind Psalm 7, 79. So look with me at verse 1 of Psalm 80, where Asaph cries out, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Uh, let me make some observations about what Asaph says here. Um, first, he addresses the Lord as the shepherd of Israel. And, and the name Israel comes from this guy, Jacob, who had his name changed 
to Israel. And then Jacob had these 12 sons. And one of Jacob's sons is Joseph. And he's mentioned, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And then Joseph had these, these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they're mentioned in verse 2. And then Joseph had a brother uh, named Benjamin. And Benjamin is also mentioned there in verse 2. So there's kind of a genealogical tracing from, from Jacob, i.e. Israel, uh, to, to Joseph and Benjamin, and then down from Joseph to Ephraim and Manasseh. Why would he be doing this? Why would, why would Asaph be referring to this line that goes down to Ephraim and Manasseh? Well, it, it's interesting. Um, the, the, word, the name Benjamin there in verse 2 means son of the right hand. Look down at Psalm 80, verse 15, where Asaph's going to talk about the stock that your right hand planted and the son whom you made strong for yourself. And then he refers to this guy in verse 17 as the man of your right hand, the son of man. I think there's a play on Benjamin at the beginning of the psalm, the son of the right hand, and the son of God's right hand at the end of the psalm. And the son of God's right hand, the man whom the Lord strengthened for himself, that's going to be the king from David's line, isn't it? And, and again, I think there are connections with earlier psalms. If you look back at Psalm 78, it says in verse 67, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. And then it identifies David. So at the beginning of Psalm 80, I think Asaph is, it's as though he's invo invo invoking the Lord and saying, Lord, before Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin, look there at verse 2, before Ephraim and in their sight, so that they can see it shine forth. And what he wants the Lord to do in shining forth is he wants the Lord to bring out the Son of Man, the man of God's right hand, the Son whom the Lord made strong for himself. So I think Asaph is crying out for the Lord to bring out the king from David's line who's going to be the one who leads. Verse 3, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So Asaph is praying that God would bring out the king from David's line and thereby restore his people and cause his face to shine upon his people. Notice also how, how Asaph identifies God here in verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. This imagery is significant. It's significant because what Asaph is doing is he's taking his knowledge of what God has done in Israel's past and he's applying it to his own prayer life. He's thinking about who God is and how God relates to his people. And then he's applying that to his own personal experience. A minute ago, I mentioned this, this concept of, of progress. I mean, all, all around us in our culture, people are talking about, uh, they, they identify themselves as progressives. And a valid question for them is, progressing toward what? And, and who is defining whether the progress you're making is progress in a good direction or progress in a bad direction? Because the, what they value, their, their end goal is not self-evident to everyone, is it? And, and not everyone agrees that the, the direction in which they're making progress is a direction that we all want to go. So, so this is a disputed idea and I would submit to you that they have no ultimate authority. In fact, these, many of these people will say, I don't believe in moral absolutes. At which point we can say, then, then 
where's the, where's the progress going? Who's defining what the progress is? But that's not what Asaph, Asaph is dealing with here. Asaph knows God. And look at what he says there in verse 1. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim. This is assuming the idea that in the Holy of Holies, there are these cherubim with these outstretched wings. And one, the wing of one cherubim touches one wall of the Holy of Holies, and his other wing touches the, the wing of the other cherubim, whose other wing, so they're stre- these two cherubim are stretched out. Uh, their, their wings overspread the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark of the Covenant is referred to elsewhere in the Old Testament as the footstool of the Lord, because the Holy of Holies is God's throne room. So God is enthroned above the cherubim. He's present there. This is a moral authority who has stated for Israel what is right and wrong and who has led Israel like a shepherd, guiding them with a loving hand. And Asaph is crying out, stir up your might and come to save us. So biblical hope has definite values, definite specific agendas. And the agenda is we want the king from David's line to reign. That's the agenda. We want God's kingdom to come. And the specifics are filled out all through the Old Testament. When he says there in verse 3, restore us, O God. Let your face shine. This is picking up number 6, 24 through 26, isn't it? Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And give you peace. So this is a a beautiful prayer that that is applying, again, knowledge from Israel's history, knowledge from the Old Testament, to the way that Asaph is praying. Let me urge you to apply this to your life. And it's it's very simple, and I think self-evident how this ought to be applied. It's, It's basic. Call on God. The God of the Bible is a loving shepherd. The God of the Bible is the world's moral authority. Call on his name. Look look down at the end of this psalm. Look at verse um, 18. Then we shall turn back, we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. This is what defines the people of God. We are those who call on the name of the Lord. So I would urge you to try. You should try. I mean, at at one level, this is something that naturally happens to us, you know. I I was talking uh, to a brother who's here this morning. I, I saw him earlier. I don't see him right now. I was talking to him earlier this week about how, what it looks like for us to bear fruit. And I said, look, if the Lord has caused the the seed to be planted in your life and the Lord is watering that seed and the Lord is bringing light on that seed, it's going to grow. It's inevitable. It's almost irresistible for, for fruit to be born. And at the same time, we should try. We should pray for this to become instinctual with us. We should pray that the Lord would make it so that whatever our circumstances Our gut-level response is to cry out to him, to call on the name of the Lord. So there's that first section here of Psalm 80, verses 1 through 3. And and Asaph's prayer, the words at the end of verse 1, shine forth. And now in verses 4 through 7, he's going to ask this question, how 
long. So look at verse 4. He says, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry? Um, this is another point of contact with, with uh, Psalm 79. Look back at 79.5. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? So he's asking the same question, isn't he? Same circumstances, same questions. How long will you be angry? Uh, th this, this question, it, it makes an important point, doesn't it? The, the simple but important point being, this isn't going to last forever. It's not going to be like this forever. Look at what he goes on to say. How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Verse 5, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink full measure. Again, I, I, again, I think this is in response to 79, 1 through 3. They probably saw relatives die. They saw the holy place defiled. They're weeping over this. And then he says in verse 6, you make us an object of contention for our neighbors. Look back at 79.4. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. Chapter 80, verse 6. Our enemies laugh among themselves. The same mockery from the same neighbors. How long? This assumes, this assumes that the pain is not going to last. Um, a week ago this past Friday, I was up at the seminary. We were in Levering Gym. I was playing basketball with the boys, and a shot went up, and, and I went in, and I, I thought, this is going to be an easy rebound to get. You know, all these kids are this tall. This is, um, I'm going to get this rebound. But I stepped on one of the kids' foot, and my ankle rolled, and it hurt so bad. I mean, it was like I could feel the bones grinding against one another. Thankfully, there was no pop, but it was so painful. And, and I collapsed on the floor, and I'm moaning, and and uh, thankfully, one of the mothers of one of the other kids sees this evident misery that I'm in, and she goes and gets me a bag of ice. The ice really, I mean, I was grateful for it, but it really didn't pay, take the pain away. It hurt so bad for about an hour. And then it subsided. And that's the way life goes in many cases, isn't it? The pain doesn't last. The, what Asaph is saying here is, in verse 4, when he says, how long will you be angry? What he's saying is, I know this isn't the permanent situation. How does he know that? On the basis of God's promises. God has promised, I'm going to bring my kingdom. I'm going to establish my king from David's line on the throne. I'm going to do justice. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to punish the wicked. And the psalmist's question is simply, when? How long, Lord? Make no mistake about it, the wicked will be like chaff. The wicked will be like chaff that the wind drives away. The, the only question is, how long? I can remember someone saying, we, we were discussing uh, difficult circumstances in a semester, and my friend said, well, you could stand on your head for a semester, couldn't you? You can last this out. You can last this out. There is something so good at the end of the road that we can endure. We can endure. We can deny ourselves. We can defer gratification because we don't live for the pleasure right here, right now. Biblical hope, not, not worldly optimism. I'm going to be pleased immediately in the near future. Biblical hope is there's something great coming. 
There's something magnificent. There's something worth losing everything for. That's biblical hope. And that brings us to verses 8 through 14, where the why question comes up. Look down at verse 12 there. Why then have you broken down its walls? And this is, again, this is like Psalm 79. Look at 79.10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? So same two questions in the same order from Psalm 79 into Psalm 80. How long and why? Now what, what Asaph is going to do in Psalm 80, uh, verses 8 through 14, is a symbolic summary of the history of Israel. And this kind of thing happens in other places in the Old Testament where the nation of Israel is treated like a plant or a vine or a tree. And, and here it's a vine. So look at Psalm 80 verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. This, this sort of metaphor, this symbolic language, it assumes that God is the gardener, right? And the people of Israel whom the Lord brought out of Egypt, they're, they're his plant, his pleasant planting. And then look at what it goes on to say there in verse 8. You drove out the nations and planted it. So uh, literally what happened in, the, in history is God liberated the people of, the, of, of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and then he brought them to the land of Canaan, and they defeated the Canaanites. But in this symbolic depiction, the Lord is like a gardener who goes out there to his plot of ground, and he clears it of rocks and weeds and, and other things that are going to inhibit its growth. And then he brings this vine, and he transplants the vine into that fertile soil. And then in verse 9, Asaph describes what took place in the history of Israel. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. So the people, they multiplied. Uh, they, they spread out all through the land. Verse 10, the mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. So Israel is flourishing. Uh, the plant is growing. It's so tall that even the highest mountains, even these tallest trees, these cedars, are covered over with, with the, this powerful nation. Verse 11, it sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. So Mediterranean Sea on one side and then probably the idea is the Euphrates River on the other. And this is kind of the whole world. Israel is controlling all this territory. And then we come to verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? Okay, so in the... In the in the uh, symbolic picture, the gardener, he, he, he breaks down the wall, and then everybody walking by, they have access to the vine. And so they just start plucking grapes. And then look at verse 13. The boar from the forest ravages it. With the wall gone, the wild animals come, come tearing up the vine, eating it. And then there in verse 13 at the end, all that move in the field feed on it. All these insects come and devour the vine. Well, what, what's being symbolized? What's being symbolized is enemy armies came. And just like we read in Psalm 79, they, they invaded the city, they defiled it, they plundered the temple, and they killed people. That's what's being symbolically presented here. Now go back to verse 12 and look at that question, why, there. Asaph is asking, why did this happen? Uh, so look at the superscription of Psalm 80. A testimony of Asaph. 
Superscription of Psalm 79, a psalm of Asaph. Superscription of Psalm 78, a mosquil of Asaph. Do you remember what Psalm 78 was? Psalm 78, a couple of weeks ago we looked at this. It's a long narrative of the history of Israel. It's, it's, it tells the story about how Israel was wicked, and so God brought judgment against them. I bring this up because of what Asaph asks in 80, Psalm 80, verse 12. Why? Asaph knows why, doesn't he? Asaph knows exactly why. That long history of disobedience in, in Psalm 78, that's why the wall was broken down and the passersby could pluck the fruit and the boar could come in and ravage the pig. It's an unclean animal. And, and then the, the insects could get at That's why. So what's Asaph doing? I don't think Asaph is looking for information when he asks why. I think Asaph is appealing to God's compassion. He doesn't need information. He's looking for mercy. He's appealing to God's concern for his people. He's appealing to God's love for his people. Why would you do this to us, Lord? I think that's the, the nature of the why question, not I'm really looking for information and, and I would like an explanation. Application? God loves his people. It's really an astonishing thought. I, I, it's a th I, I'll be honest with you, I don't understand that statement. God loves his... I wouldn't love us, <laughs> right? I mean, if we just took it on the merits... Um, no, I don't think I would respond the way the Lord does. Uh, and, and then if you, if you start exploring the idea of who God is, you've got this almighty, omnipotent, omniscient uh, being who, who knows everything that you're ever going to think, everything that you're ever going to do, every one of your, ever, your responses. He knows every joke you're ever going to tell. He, he knows it. you're never going to surprise him. And he loves us. He loves us. He doesn't need us. It's not like we're um, interesting to him, right? He knows everything, but he, it's real. It's real. He loves us. It's bigger than I can begin to conceive, but God loves his people, and Asaph is appealing to God's tender, compassionate, caring love for his people in this description. I think that's why he goes into the symbolism. I think that's why he does it metaphorically, symbolically. Because he wants to bring out the way that, that often, I mean, I don't know if you've done this. I've planted seed in my yard, grass, hoping that it would grow. And then I've watered that seed, and then I'll go out and I'll just look for the sprouts. You know, I can see it. Can you see it coming in right there? Honey, it just looks like the same old weeds to me. <laughs> but if you see grass there, I'll take your word for it. This is my wife speaking. Uh, but this is the way we are with things we plant. And, and I think he's, he's, bring, he's bringing that up and, he, and he's appealing to the Lord's love for what he has done and what he has accomplished and for his people. So verse 3, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. It, it's assuming, isn't it, that the punishment, the wrath is going to come to an end. And things are going to get better because God has made these promises 
And God is going to keep these promises. And we want him to do it for us now. And then verse 14, there's, it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, but if we were looking at it in the original, um, in, in English, at least in the ESV, they put the turn again first and then, O God of hosts. But in Hebrew, it's, it's O God of hosts first, just like these, these other ones, verses 3 and 7 and verse 19. Um, the address to God comes first. And then the word turn again is from the same root that, that this word restore is from. So it's, it's the same term, turn and restore, it's Hebrew verb shuv, same, same word, just uh, presented in a different context and a diff, uh, different formation that makes it uh, mean turn rather than restore. But the meaning, I think, is the same. Turn again, O God of hosts. And then in the request, make your face shine upon us. This assumes, doesn't it, that the Lord is looking to his people and the light of his face is shining on his people. And look what he says here in verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. This is just kind of a different way to say, make your face shine on us. Have regard for this vine. Now what happens next, I think, is really interesting. This, this is just fascinating because in verse 8... The vine is the nation, isn't it? You brought a vine out of Egypt. And then he concludes that section in verses 8 through 14 with another reference to the vine. But then it's like he goes from the national vine in verse 14 to the individual vine in verse 15. And he refers to there in verse 15 the stock that your right hand planted, the son whom you made strong for yourself. Uh, Asaph, I think, is aware of uh, Exodus 4, 22 and 23, where the Lord told Moses to go and say to Pharaoh, let my son go. So at that point, the nation of Israel was God's son. And then he was, Moses was to go on and say, if you don't let my son go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son, which is what happened in the death of the firstborn. So the nation is the son, and yet... They're expecting an individual too, aren't they? The king from David's line. So there's, there's a sort of dynamic at work here between the collective vine, the whole nation, and the individual stock. And then look what he goes on to say. He refers to the son whom you made strong for yourself. In the Psalms, if we just read this, this statement, Psalm 80, verse 8, in context... Uh, the, the only other son of God that we have read about is Psalm 2, 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that's the Lord's anointed in Psalm 2. So this son is the Davidic Messiah. And then he says in verse 16, I think this is just fascinating, talking about the stock. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. Now, a minute ago, I mentioned that this happens elsewhere in the Old Testament. Can you think of a place in the Old Testament where the people of Israel are likened to a tree? And the tree gets chopped down. And then the stump gets burned. But there's something special because the holy seed is the stump. You know what a pastor said? Isaiah 6, 13. Same imagery. I think Isaiah, Asaph, if, if he's the guy that lived in David's time, into Solomon's reign. Um, Asaph is before Isaiah. Isaiah 6.13 may very well be a development of Psalm 80, verse 16. 
And, and, and look at what he's saying here. They've burned the stock with fire. They've cut it down. That's exactly what Isaiah 6.13 describes. So, so think about what's being said. The wrath of God is visited at the hand of the enemy nations. And then after the wrath is exhausted, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. And the holy seed in the stump is going to bear fruit. It's, it's like Isaiah 11.1 1 saying, the shoot from the stump of Jesse is going to become glorious. It's like Isaiah 53 verse 2 saying, he grew up before us like a root out of dry ground. And then verse 17, let your hand be on the man of your right hand. And this too is, is interesting. This, this idea that he's the man of God's right hand. Earlier in the Psalter, David had said, it's interesting, David had said, because he, the Lord, is at my right hand, I shall never be shaken. And then later in the psalm, he says that there are everlasting pleasures at your right hand. So David seems to think of himself as at God's right hand. And then uh, we, we're going to get to Psalm 110, Lord willing, eventually. And in Psalm 110, the Lord says, uh, David says, to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the king from David's line is going to be the man of God's right hand. And then, there in verse 17, the son of man. We read about him in Psalm 8 earlier in this service. So God's son, Psalm 2-7, the man of God's right hand, Psalm 110-1, Psalm 16-11, is the son of man, Psalm 8, verse 4. It, it, it sort of turns my crank when stuff from all over the Bible or all over the Psalms gets all brought together in one place. I think this is really beautiful. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. And this is in the context of vine imagery, right? I, I think that this, all this stuff right here is, is probably in the mind of the Lord Jesus when he says, I am the true vine, meaning I'm the true Israel. And, and any branch that's going to be alive, needs to be connected to me. And so I would say to you, if you want to be able to pray this way, if, you, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I, I hope you, you see the, the vanity and the futility of your optimism and of your individualism. And I hope you find that it's empty. And I hope that that emptiness, you feel a, a contrast within yourself between that emptiness and this this transcendence that keeps kind of breaking through, it, it keeps, it's almost like it's wooing you, you know, the, the beauty of music, uh, the, the, the glory of, of the leaves in the fall. Th this stuff is not, I, I don't think you want to say, that's just a chemical reaction in my brain. That's all it is. I like music because it does things in my brain that evolve for it to be that. Well, no, that, that can't be right. We know that's not right, don't we? And, and, and what we're offering to you, what we're holding out to you is something that has a deeper, more searching, more satisfying explanation for everything that you feel in response to transcendence. And it will give you a hope, a hope that will stand in the face even of death. A hope that will enable you to deny yourself and be a good person as you give yourself away to other people. But for this to happen, you've got to be connected to the vine. And for you to become connected to the vine, you're going to have to trust in Jesus. You're going to have to turn from all the ways that you rebel against King Jesus and bow the knee to the one who is worthy of your loyalty.
Uh, we'd, we'd love to talk with you uh, after the service about this. I'll be around. I'll be hanging around here at the front. Matt will be around. Nathan will be around. Andrew will be around. Uh, there'll be a, and, and you're probably sitting next to somebody that's eager to talk to you. Mike's up there in the balcony. There, there are lots of people that would love to talk with you further. Just grab one of us, and we'd, we'd love to pursue this conversation of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Asaph prays here in verse 17. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Twice he says... That God made this man strong for himself. Verse 15, the son whom you made strong for yourself. Verse 17, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. By the way, we opened with Daniel 7, 13 and 14. That's another passage brought in here. It's amazing how much scripture is connected here. Is there a strength that can overcome God making the son of man strong? Nobody's going to overcome him, are they? Nope. I mean, I, this, we're, I'm watching college football this fall. Nobody can play with Alabama. Where's Denny? Sorry, Denny. He hates it. Nobody can play with Alabama. There's no, I mean, I, I'll be very shocked if anybody beats Alabama. Hey, nobody's going to conquer King Jesus. Nobody is going to overcome Jesus. He is as far superior to any rival, so far superior to any rival that, I mean, this reference to Alabama is almost sacrilegious, right? There's no comparison between Alabama's dominance and the Lord Jesus's dominance, but it's because it's going to be everlasting and it's altogether and fully and completely righteous. God made him strong for himself. Is there any purpose more noble than that? Is there any purpose more certain of being accomplished than that? No. No, this is a strength that will not be rivaled. This is a purpose that cannot be assailed or challenged. If God will do all these things, Asaph says in verse 18, then we shall not turn back from you. You know, in, in, a, in a way, what Asaph is praying is, Lord, Cause what you've promised to become reality. And, if, and it's as though he's saying, if you'll do that for us, we won't turn back from you. We, we'll, we'll stay with you face to face. We won't draw back from you if you'll make the promises real in our lives. And I submit to you that if you'll take note of the things that you pray for, and I would encourage you to do that. Take note of the last week at the beginning of the service, I had this little journal in which I write prayer requests. And there are dated prayer requests in there for the Lord to provide a, a space for Kenwood Baptist Church sufficient for her needs. Uh, and, and then there are, uh, there are dates of the way the Lord has answered prayer. I mean, I've got dated prayers in there. Lord, provide um, Garrett Fox with a ministry position. And then there's a date when Garrett was hired by that church over there in Arkansas. We should note down what we pray for. And then we should note down the way that the Lord answers our prayers. And it will increase our desire to continue to walk with God. It will make us more faithful. We will not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. And then the refrain at the end, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is our hope. Our hope is that God's face would shine. 
and in this, in this book, um, that uh, Making Sense of God, um, Tim Keller, he, he reports on this lecture given by this guy named Howard Thurman, who was an Afri African-American scholar at Boston University, and he gave this lecture at Harvard on the meaning of the Negro spirituals, um, talking about the songs that the slaves sang. And he, he raised the question that, that modern people have in response to these Negro spirituals. Surely, all this talk of crowns and heaven is symbolic. It's just metaphorical. It's just religious talk. You don't literally expect those things to be reality, do you? And, and what this guy, Howard, Furman, Howard Thurman, discusses is, is the way that if it's not literal, we don't have a real hope. But if it's literal, if, if these are literal things that we really expect God to do, Thurman writes, this faith enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. And, and he talks about, he says, um, this, is, this is Keller um, responding, if such things were seen as mere symbols and not real, they could never have served to provide a life of hope to slaves when the prospects for improvement were so small. Imagine how ludicrous it would have been to sit down with a group of early 19th century slaves and say, there will never be a judgment day in which wrongdoing will be put right. There is no future world and life in which your desires will ever be satisfied. This life is all there is. When you die, you simply cease to exist. Our only real hope for a better world lies in improved social policy. Now, with these things in mind, go out there, keep your head high, and live a life of courage and love. Don't give in to despair. It's not going to work, is it? The only thing that's going to enable them to maintain their dignity, to continue to hope, to sing, is if they believe it. Christian hope offers power to people who suffer. And it's greater than mere optimism about my own individual prospects. Hope in eternal justice and divine blessing, Keller writes, sustained the African-American slaves. May it do the same for us. Let's pray. Restore us, O oh God. Let your face shine. Lord, cause your face to shine and cause the seeds of the gospel to bear fruit. Lord, I pray for people who came into this room today thinking that they're not Christians, but they'll, they'll just do this for the people in their lives that they love. They'll show up because they've been badgered. Lord, I pray that you would cause the seed of your word to bear fruit. I pray that you'd make it powerful and effective. And Lord, I pray for those of us who, who hope in you. God, keep us from, even in small ways, incidental reactions or the ways that we interact with coworkers. Lord, keep us from being swept up in this individual optimism. And Lord, cause our, our hope to help us to fight temptation. Make us people 
who are willing to delay, delay our gratification, to resist, to deny ourselves, because we know that there is something so glorious that it's not worth being compared to what we suffer now. Lord, we ask that you do these things, and we, we pray that you would be honored by the way that we live, that you would receive glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.